All right. Well, we're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke. Today we're going to finish chapter 15. And chapter 15 at the end is, is one of the most well-known of all parables, the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son. I want to start off this morning before we get to that by talking to you about worldviews, about worldviews. Everyone has a worldview. Children, are, their worldviews are being developed by their parents, by culture, by media, by other things, other influences. Our worldviews have been influenced as well. We all have a worldview. It's the, it's the way that we view the world. It's the, the lenses, the glasses that we wear over our eyes to the way we interpret everything else around us. We all have worldviews. These are our values. We use our morals that we've been taught. We've used principles that we've been taught. And we have certain presuppositions in our worldviews that, that shape the way that we see the world. There are three worldviews I want to just throw out to you as examples really quickly that I think are most prevalent. I think one of the biggest ones that is growing now is a secular worldview. The secular worldview says there is no God, right? It says there is no God and, and, and simply all there is is us. All there is is you and, and the world, the physical world around you. And the, so the, the spiritual has no, it doesn't even exist. There's also the religious worldview. In the world religious worldview, I'm speaking real broadly here, they believe in a God, right? And whatever that may be, whatever that may look like, and the purpose then of man is to appease their God. There's another worldview, and that is the spiritual worldview. The spiritual worldview doesn't really believe in God. That, that sounds counterintuitive. Doesn't really believe in God, but in, they believe in spiritual forces are always acting around us, manipulating nature and ourselves to do whatever happens around us. And if they did believe in a God, a, a actual God, this spiritual worldview, it really wouldn't be based in objective truth. It wouldn't be based in objective truth. We live in a place here in America, particularly here in the cultural south of America, where all three of these worldviews exist. And sometimes there is even a, a mixture of those worldviews. I, I've, I've met people who were religious, they're religious with a, with a Christian bent to them, but yet their lives were very secular. Their lives were functionally secular, right? So they had a, a religious worldview here in the, what they say they believed, but yet functionally lived secular. And there are also those who have a spiritual Christian worldview, they believe in a God, they believe in God, they believe in a God, but 
the reality of their God is, is more shaped around their own perception of what they want God to be. Now, there's massive problems with all of these. We all have worldviews. And I think what we see flowing throughout chapter 15, and in particular in the, the story of the prodigal son, is we see Jesus going after false worldviews. We see Jesus going after a, a skewed worldview that will destroy them. And to then rebuild a biblical, hence question number one, a biblical, I mean two, sorry, a biblical gospel-centered worldview that's based upon the revealed word of God. And to understand how he does this, we, we have to understand again the context here in chapter 15 and why Jesus is giving us these, these parables, right? We've already dealt with the first and second parable, the parable of the, of the lost sheep, and then there's the parable of the, the lost coin, and now today we're at the parable of the, the, the prodigal son or the, the lost son. And he, he gives us these things to, to correct us, to correct our worldviews. Look, look back again. At verse 1. We've got, we got to look at verse 1 before we look back at verse, or we look at verse 11. So look at verse 1. He says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so that's verses 1 and 2, and that sets up the teaching that Jesus gives. So, so Jesus here is eating with tax collectors and sinners. They are, they are coming to him. They are fellowshipping with him and Jesus is letting them draw near. Tomorrow, in particular, most of us will not like the IRS. We will not like the IRS or tax collectors. But the tax collectors that Jesus is talking about here are way worse. They didn't just collect money. They extorted and collaborated with the Romans that led to an oppressive rule over their country that they saw thousands of their countrymen, family members die at the hand of the Romans and it was being funded by these tax collectors. And then there were the sinners. And, and not just because everyone else is a sinner, so it wasn't this inclusive group of everybody, but it was this, this group of known sinners, thieves and prostitutes and fornicators and liars murderers, drug addicts, abusers, alcoholics, the unclean. And, and, and also this group of sinners, this, these were also people who were sick and deformed because they were considered sinners because of their condition. God must be judging them. And so the Pharisees looking at Jesus that these receiving these, these two groups of people is stunning and scandalous and they grumbled about it. Now, with each of these groups of people, the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees, each of them have a worldview. They each have a worldview, a worldview by which they, they, they understand God, a worldview by which they are approaching Jesus. The, the tax collectors 
And the sinners are these, these people, once again, who have been, they've been told their, their whole entire life, or most of them their whole entire life, that you are an outcast. They were, they were told that God was judging you. They were told that there is no forgiveness for you. You're not allowed in the synagogue. You're not allowed to hear the Bible taught. They were completely disconnected. And yet here, they were drawing near. Maybe, maybe at one time in, in our life or your life, you, you were a major league sinner, and you can understand their predicament. Because what ends up happening in the mindset of a tax collector and sinner, particularly in, in that kind of culture, in a very religious culture, is that these people begin to believe that they are not the kind of person that God goes after. They begin to believe that, that God does not love them or God could not forgive them. So what are they to do then? Go headlong into sin. And there are signs of this even in our own culture, isn't there? There are how many people won't go to church, will not go to church, because they believe that I will not fit in with everybody else. God's for that type of person, not me. So I'll run from him rather than go to him. But what about the Pharisees' worldview? They're on the other side of the spectrum. They're, they're what you would call major league, quote-unquote, evangelicals. They only listen to Christian music. They don't watch rated R movies. They only eat at Chick-fil-A. And now they are in, they're in the, uh, what's that, exile. They're upright in all their ways. Now, it's okay to have standards like that. It is okay. But here's where the rub goes where there's wrong, because they live in such a way that is so morally upright, and because they, because they believe that their moral uprightness in some way gains for them favor with God, that God should not give to anyone else. That's the problem. They're on the other side of the spectrum because they earned it. And Jesus goes after both of these worldviews, doesn't he? He doesn't want, and he doesn't leave them there either. He doesn't just blow them up, but he rebuilds them with a biblical, gospel-centered worldview, a gospel of grace. And that's what this, this third parable, I think, is all, is all about, the deconstruction of false worldviews of the sinners and the Pharisees, and then the rebuilding of them in the gospel. And, and also what's just amazing in this is we see, we see in the gospel something very lovely, something very beautiful about God the Father as well. That he is a God who lavishes his amazing grace, his abundant love on sinners and the self-righteous. Let's read the text. Look at verse 11. A 
And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, that, of your property, of the property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And he had spent everything. A severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here in hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and no longer am I worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring a fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and he drew to the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked these things, what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come home. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your commands, and yet you never gave me a goat and that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see this holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. You couldn't have picked a better passage to preach the week before Resurrection Day. In fact, I wish I was preaching this next Sunday. But in God's providence, here it is. It beautifully highlights for us the gospel. It beautifully highlights and illustrates for us the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. And in this parable, Jesus is showing these people with these false worldviews a biblical worldview. He deconstructs theirs and reconstructs them. This story is, for most of us, I think, fairly familiar. We, we've heard this many times. We, we know this story. We 
we use it in sometimes in our language when we talk about someone who's maybe a, a family member or a son or daughter, someone you know that's gone astray, and maybe they've come home. We call them the prodigal son or daughter. But very much, Jesus is telling us something even more than just about the son. He's telling us about the father. Now, what's different from this parable than the other two is that in the other two, we would look at the shepherd and we would look at the, the woman as almost the heroes in the story. And we, were, we would read these stories kind of rooting for them, them wanting to find what they lost. But the way that Jesus sets this story up for us is that what seems like the main character, the younger son, because that's who really starts off the story, is the way that we read it. And we read it as, and look at it, that in, in truth, rightfully so, that he is a spoiled, ungrateful punk. And that he should get everything that he deserves. But that's the very point that Jesus is making. Jesus is making that point. We are supposed to to feel that way about this guy. There's two more characters. There's the father. The spoiler alert, he is the main character of the story. And then there's the older son. The older son who we're supposed to like, and, and we read. He does everything we would want our kids to do. And yet, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He sets this guy up as the good example. But Jesus shows that his worldview is the worldview that is just as broken as the younger son. And again, that's the point. So three points here. Refusing sonship, receiving sonship, and rejecting sonship. We're going to just walk through the text and see these things. And in that, I'm going to show you these worldviews, the false worldviews. And then we're going to show you how, by showing the glory and character of the Father, we see the beauty of the gospel. And what we see even more than a prodigal son, what really shines in this passage is a prodigal God. So refusing sonship. Jumping right in, that first point, right there in verse 11, we see exactly that point. The young son, younger son, refusing sonship. And for some reason, we, we don't know why. We can all imagine why he would do this, but we don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. But he, for unknown reason, he demands of his father to give him his cut. Give me my cut of the inheritance. Traditionally, that's about one-third. The older son would get two-thirds. And as odd as that would be for someone to do that today to their father, it was that much even more for them. Because this was not just disrespectful, but, but this is kind of on the lines of breaking the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. This younger son is deliberately, willfully casting off the authority of his father and mother. In many ways, he could have been taken out and stoned to death. The reason why is because he is essentially telling his father, you are dead to me. And all I want is your money that you owe me. 
We don't know why he did this, but, but definitely this was a massive, huge breach in the relationship, wasn't it? He's refusing sonship. And immediately, what does he do? He takes what he thinks is owed to him, and he leaves. He goes to a foreign land, where maybe so that he doesn't get stoned to death. And what does his, this life look like then? It's reckless living, as Jesus says. He squanders his inheritance. And this kind of lifestyle isn't hard to imagine. This is what the heart does when given full vent into its lusts and desires. And as the prodigal son, which is this is what prodigal means. Prodigal means he, he lavishly, over-exceedingly, over-abundantly lived a lifestyle that was over the top. Refusing sonship, saying, no, thank you. I'm taking what's mine. I'm getting out of here. And you know what? Refusing sonship always leads to the same thing every single time. It leads to slavery. Sin makes the same kind of promises that God makes. You will be happy if you do this. You will get everything that you want in life if you go in this direction. But it's, it's all a lie because it ends up in slavery. And, and that's what happens to him in verse 14. He spends everything. The money is gone. All his new friends are gone. Famine hits. Economic depression. And he completely finds himself destitute alone. And for the first time in his life in need. It was bad. And he had to get a job. And not just any job, a job of feeding pigs. And, and he was so underpaid at this job that what he was feeding the pigs, he wished he could eat himself. That's slavery. Jesus, in this illustration of this young man, is exposing the worldview of the tax collectors and sinners. Because this is the attitude of a, tax, of a sinner. I struggle with sin. It doesn't go away with it doesn't go away easily. I'm an outcast. I've never been good enough to fit in. God doesn't really love me or forgive me or forgive people like me. So I'll just run into those things and I'll always go to those places. Because those places will always say, listen to me, those places will always say, come. Those foreign places, they will always say, come. Come. You feel that way for a reason. Come. And Jesus is saying, this is where it's going to lead you. This is the end. It's slavery. Are you struggling with sin this morning? Are you, are you tempted to believe that it would just be easier just to bail? To hit the reset button? Hit, hear the words of Jesus this morning. Refusing sonship only leads to slavery, never freedom. Now for the other side, the moralist worldview, they're, reading, they're looking at the story, they're listening to the story, and they're saying, you see? You see what happens when you don't listen? 
You, you see what happens when, you don't, when you're not obedient and you don't do what your, your, your parents tell you? That's what happens when you do bad things. This is why you don't disrespect your parents. And, and they, got, they even have some biblical grounds there. I mean, Proverbs is really about that. But is it proving the point of the moralist? We see the destruction of the sinner's worldview here. But he is also setting up again the moralist worldview to be destroyed, isn't he? Next. So first we see the refusal of sonship and it leads to slavery. The next point we see receiving sonship in verse 17. What happens to this young man? Something pivotal happens in verse 17. It says he, he came to himself. Meaning in his desperation, and, and this doesn't happen with every you. Like, not everybody gets to this point. Some people live in slavery their whole entire lives and not even know it. They can even be at that state of, of destitute and not even really know it. But in God's mercy, he came to his, his senses in clarity. He's like, what am I doing? Look what I have fallen from. Look who I have offended. And what verses 17 through 20 just lay out this, this broken heart of repentance. And, and let's be really clear for us. I think that there are some of you, you can look back at a, a time in your own life when in God's kindness, listen to me, when in God's kindness he made you miserable. That in God's kindness he made you desperate. He made you broken and hungry and destitute. And, thou, and all those, those things enough. He put you in that position enough so that you could see your sin that you are. And that you need God's mercy. And that you need God's kindness. And finally, as he did, you came to your senses and you called out to him for repentance. Some of you have been there. Yeah, I've been there. I know what it means to hit rock bottom. Coming to your senses is the mercy of God. Now this son, he's humble enough to confess his sins to his father, wants to confess his sins to his father, wants to go home believing, knowing that his father would, would maybe at least receive him as a servant. I, I can't be a son anymore. I, I rejected it. I, I, have, I have severed, I divorced myself from my parents. I can't be a son. I don't deserve it. And these are the words of the repenting sinner. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's what he means there. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now let's look at the worldviews in light of this. You see, at this point, the, the, sinner, the sinner is thinking to themselves, you see, you see, I, I have to come back as a servant. I have to come back as a, a slave. You see, I'll, I'll never be good enough. There's, the, again, part of that, that false worldview of the, of the sinner. I'm never going to be good enough. And the other, the other side is saying, yep, you're going to get it. Here it comes. The father's really going to give it to him. But this is where the, this parable goes 
in a completely different direction than anyone else ever thought it would. In this next, these verses, Jesus is illustrating why his offensive action of receiving sinners in verses 1 and 2, that's what he's doing here. And look what this says in verse 20. And he arose, meaning the father, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they begin to celebrate. You've got to imagine the scene here. You have to see what's going on here. This son who's going back to his father, he is ready to be absolutely humiliated before his family. And he's ready because his life is terrible. He's ready to own up to his rebellion and his offensiveness to God and the father and his father and he knows what he wants to say it's right there he's ready to say his heart is pounding he's nervous he's facing the fear and doubt maybe i should run again maybe i should get away but as he gets closer and closer and closer to home the unexpected happens this is the this is the but god moment of the gospel his father saw him felt compassion, and ran to him. And the father, he cast off all this social etiquette that elderly are not supposed to run in their robes and all that mess, and just cast all that aside because there's my son. And he, and he hugs him, and he embraces his son who has been feeding pigs, dirty, broken, smelly, a person that once rejected him and embarrassed him. And the father tells his servant to bring the best robe, a ring, and put the shoes. These details, Jesus is making a huge point. What the father is saying here, what the father is doing here is he is saying, I am adopting my son back. He is saying, I am adopt adopting my son back because when he says, put on the best robe, that's the father's robe. Put on the, the best robe. This is a new mark of honor. He says, give him a ring. That's a, that's a symbol of authority that only sons receive. And this is what's beautiful. Why does he say put shoes on him? Just because it's unhygienic to be walking around with no shoes on? Because the difference between a son and a slave is sons wear shoes. Servants don't. Who's the prodigal now? Who, over all expectations, over-exceeds in lavishing love? The father does. The father's love is very much prodigal toward his son. Now remember, the, the son... The son thought just like the sinner's worldview, right? And, and, and we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're, going, we're going back, and we have to do all of these things in order for the father to accept me. 
I got to come back and I got to do all these things in order for the Father to accept me, for, for God to love me. This is the, this is the worldview of, of sinners. And the, the Son shows up in an absolute, complete, filthy mess. And the only thing he wants is to even be considered to be just a slave, a servant. But what does the Father say? The Father says, No way! No, no way! Give me a robe, give me a ring and shoes. This is my son. So many believe. So many believe that they need to show up and they need to work and earn God's favor. And and this is where, brothers and sisters, the two worldviews kind of come together and agree. Because the worldview of the sinner believes that the only way I can come back to God and may possibly be forgiven and possibly be called a servant is if I come back clean. If I come back doing something to earn my place back. And the, in the worldview of the, the moralists, they're already there. They already believe that justifies them. They've already done it. But God doesn't need anything. In fact, Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17, he says, we don't serve a God made by human hands who who needs anything from us. He doesn't need anything. And and the, the things like repentance and faith that he is asking are not for him, but for us. They're for for us. They're for us to to believe and to repent. His love and grace is solely based upon his character. It's solely based on his character and not on anything that we can do or bring. Listen to me. God is not restrained by a moron like me on what I can do. His grace is not restrained like he's sitting there. Well, I I, want to do that, but I can't. I'm waiting for this moron to turn back to me. He's not restrained on that. But God says to the repentant sinner, no, you are not my servant. You are my son. You are adopted and purchased and purchased by the cross of my son, Jesus Christ. That's why I love you. That's why I accept you. This is the great exchange. This is the beauty of the gospel because sinners can come to God and and he makes them sons. He makes them co-heirs with Christ and he clothes them in Christ's righteousness. And this is what the cross is all about. This is what the cross wins for us. This is the cross accomplishes us for us. This is the gospel. And this is the gospel in which sinners with a sinner's worldview need. How about you? Does your worldview of God and the gospel and Jesus and the church look like this? Do you see yourself as just a servant hoping to get in? Or are you a son? Romans chapter 8, verse 15. It says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Right? To not fear. But you have received the spirit of what? Adoption. As sons. As sons! Not slaves, not servants. By whom as sons we cry, Abba, Father. 
And then the Spirit himself bears witness in our spirit that we are children. The Spirit of God is always leading us and teaching us and showing us that you are children of God. You have been received, co-heirs with Christ. And nothing of what you have done, but all of what Christ has done, heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ. Not servants, not slaves, but as sons. That's what the gospel does. It receives us as sons. That's the deconstructing and the rebuilding, right? This is the rebuilding now. No, no, no. When you come back, God loves you because of him. Because he is gracious. Because he is good. And he forgives you because of the perfect work of Christ, not you. So come with your sin and be forgiven. Imagine what that does to a sinner. What does it do? It brings them home. Lastly, rejecting sonship. And we have to look at the older son. Because essentially what we see here is him rejecting sonship. As the older son was out in the field, verse 25, he was doing what he was supposed to do. He was doing everything he was always done. He makes sure, and he makes sure you know that too, by the way. He makes sure that I was doing what I was supposed to be. I was at where I was supposed to be. And he hears a huge party going on. A huge party going on at his house. And he looks at one of his servants that may be coming toward him, and he's like, what is going on? And he tells him, your brother's come home, and your father has received him. He was dead, but now he's found. They're throwing a party. And, and this imagery, by the way, this imagery of the party is very reminiscent of verses 7 and 10, aren't they? Because there will be more joy in heaven and more joy before the angel of, more before the angels over a sinner who repents. That's what's supposed to be drawing us back to here. In the older son's reaction to what his father has done with his brother was anger. And the way that he was going to stick it to his dad was, I'm going to deprive him of my presence. So he stays out in the field. This is his way of shaming his father. And so what does his father do? His father comes out to him and comes out to him and apparently he's having his own little party out in the field, a pity party. And he's like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? Look what you're missing. And, and you can almost see Jesus. This is what he's saying to the Pharisees every time he encounters them. What are you doing? When you read what the Father says in verses 20 and 30, or what he says to the Father, I'm sorry, you hear the voice of, a, of someone who thinks that they haven't gotten their due, that they haven't received what they deserve. It's a voice of someone who thinks that they're entitled to God's favor because of what they have, have done. And because of that, they have absolutely no ability whatsoever to rejoice 
when someone who does not deserve grace and love and forgiveness does receive it. And his voice sounds just like the Pharisees of verse, of verse 2, doesn't it? They grumble. And they blame God for receiving sinners. He thinks he's the one that deserves the big party. But he's absolutely oblivious to his own need for grace. That's why the party was so offensive to him. And the sad reality is, is that he is, is now what? He is now the slave. But he's not a slave to, the, to a licentious, sinful, reckless lifestyle like the other brother. But he is a slave to his own self-righteousness, which will condemn him just as much. That is sin. He is so blind that he is willing to miss the celebration. Now here's the problem. If you have a church background, then then we know at this point we're to be appalled at this older son's arrogance. But we have to really be careful here because I have heard with my own ears the same type of entitlements. I have heard that I'm smart, I'm athletic, I go to church, I'm successful, then yeah, of course, Jesus should have died for me. That is the danger, brothers and sisters, of living in a middle-class American Christian culture is the entitlement of deserving God's grace, which is an oxymoron. <laughs> no one deserves grace. And when someone thinks that God owes them, then they will think that he is being stingy and holding back from them when they see God work of grace in someone else's life. Let me give you an illustration that I read. This is a true story. I don't know the details, but I read this this week. And I think it illustrates this attitude perfectly. There was a woman, and, and this woman was a, a faithful church member. But th this woman also had an unbelieving and unfaithful husband, meaning he was unfaithful to her. And, and he would constantly make it known of his rejection of Christ to her. And, and he, would, he would show his wickedness and disdain for her by his unfaithfulness. But despite his unbelief, the ridicule of her faith, and his unfaithfulness, she endured. She endured for years, for, for even decades. And in the church, they, they looked at her as a very godly woman who was faithful in so many ways. Even despite her situation, she would always be at church, and she would, she would always be serving people and volunteering as much as possible. She, she taught Bible studies. She loved others. But after those many years, those decades, this husband was convicted of sin. Came to his senses or saw his brokenness. Drawn in to by God and he trusted in Christ and he became a Christian. Hallelujah, what wonderful news. I mean, the church just rejoiced. They were shocked. Oh my goodness. This guy became a Christian? You've got to be kidding me. It's amazing. They were rejoicing and so thankful to see a man who was so dead to sin come alive in Christ. 
But something crazy happened. The wife, who endured many years, and who was so faithful for so many years, she was the one who couldn't forgive. And she couldn't take it. And she ended up abandoning the faith and her husband. How, how does that happen? I mean, out of everyone in the whole church, shouldn't, be, shouldn't she be the one to, to rejoice the most and be the most happy or at least to receive the greatest benefit of the, what the Lord's work, at least in this life? What happened? And the analysis of the situation that, was, that I read was spot on. All of those years, what happened? She began to think of herself as, as the victim of the situation. And that became her identity. Because she continued to receive from the church that appreciation of her long-suffering. And they weren't wrong in encouraging her there. But in her heart, it created a sense that she was the, er, the one who earned God's favor. That she was the one that earns, that should get God's grace and appreciation. So when her husband came to faith and received unmerited favor of God, the grace of God, to her, that was unfair. That was unfair. It's un and, and probably even felt unloving to her because how could her husband be forgiven and welcomed home like the younger son was? And it crushed her. You see, it's not just the tax collectors and sinners that need to repent and receive sonship, is it? It also includes everyone that believes they're good. All our good deeds are still as filthy rags before God. All have fallen short before God. And, and if, and if and all, of our, all, of our, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, and we could not earn righteousness at all. No matter, no matter how much law you lived by. And you see, this is what's so beautiful about the story. Because it's not just the, the dirty sinner who repents, but also the church kid and the church adult has the, gets to hear the gospel too, to repent. And he's inviting them in too. He's rebuilding the worldview of the legalist, of the moralist, of the Pharisee. The father pleads for the son to come in, to come party, come, come party with us, come, come drink some wine and eat some steak, man. It's good. And you see, this is the problem with this worldview. They see themselves as superior to everyone else. And unless they see their sin and their need for grace and they repent, then they always will miss out on the great joy of the kingdom of God. They'll always miss out on the party. Because the party wasn't just about the younger son. It was their party. It was, it was their party to celebrate the love of the father. 
And that son has always been welcomed in. What about you? We'll finish up here. What about you? Have you bought into the lie to just give into sin? The worldview of a sinner, the, the whole Christian thing is, is in no way could be for you. That you're just not that kind of person. And, and, and just embracing and living out a sinner's lifestyle, it's just what you should do. Be the easiest thing. Because this is the whole point. One of the main points of this parable is to correct that viewpoint. And you know what's also quite interesting about this parable? It's not how it ends, but how it doesn't end. You see, Jesus, Jesus doesn't really end it for us because he doesn't tell us what happened. He, he leaves us there where the, the father's pleading for the older son to come in. And yet we're left hanging. Does he come in? Does he come in? And there's a reason for that. There's a beautiful purpose there, but Jesus is saying to the Pharisees because he wants them to come in. And, and what we know after the, after the resurrection, many of the Pharisees do come in. They, they, they do drop their own attempts to earn God's grace by their performance and behavioral modification and to put God in their debt and they trust in Christ and confess their sin and their need for the, for the grace of God. Many of the Pharisees do come staggering in. But that door is also open for us. Have you come in? Have you come in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, what amazing grace you have shown us. To us who are sinners and to us who think we're good, you have shown us great grace. And this morning you are bidding us to come, to come to come in, to come in, oh Lord, help us in our hearts to come in, to see the beauty of Christ, repent of our sin, and to come in. Oh Lord, may the, the feelings of entitlement, Lord, they may, may they be broken in our hearts, that none of our good morals and upstanding living life, none of that, none of that earns us a place. But only because of the grace that you have given us through Christ. Help us as we respond now to the glory of your name for the joy of our hearts in Christ's name. Amen.